Shostak Kishlowski. This is uh, part two of our Decalogue series. Uh, we covered the first two episodes on the first episode of this uh, series, mini-series. And so we'll, we will be c covering episodes three and four this time around. And uh, I am Matt Gasteyer, your host. My co-host is here with me to cover these second uh t this this second bunch of episodes from uh Kieślowski's Decalogue Travis Trudell how you doing Travis good I'm doing fantastic can't wait to talk about uh more moral conundrums you know this Just yes yes this is exciting morality and speaking of moral conundrums uh we have we have with us uh the person that we stole the com the word complete from uh, Keith Enright, uh, the Criterion Completionist. <laughs> we had to contractually, uh, we were contractually obligated to have him on so he wouldn't sue us. Uh, well, it took you long doing? enough then. <laughs> how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys. Great to talk to both of you. And as we were just saying, uh, first time talking to Travis. So uh, we'll see if there's a second after this. Yes, and uh, you know, obviously, I was slightly kidding. Um, we we do a, a different sort of thing here on the show than you do, but you you are the reason that we are here. Essentially, um, you connected all of us. Uh, you're kind of the um, the ringmaster of these uh, these Criterion podcasts circles, uh, Facebook group circles. Um, but there 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 was probably some people uh, listening here who don't know who you are. So if you want to give a kind of brief overview of uh, your background in, in these uh, these parts, that would be sure. great. Sure. Um, well, that, that, that's kind of embarrassing to say that because I've kind of really backed off on so much of this stuff. In fact, I officially pulled down uh, the Facebook group and a couple other things recently. But yeah, I, I, I came online three or four or five years ago as the Criterion Completionist. Uh, came from the Criterion cast side of the house. Uh, Dave Blakesley and I have been communicating for many, many years. And uh, there was one day that uh, we were both talking by messenger and, you know, we were talking about why there weren't any Criterion groups out there or very few. And uh, I jokingly said at one point, I said, well, I could start a group that's just pictures of people saying, here's what I bought this week. And uh, <laughs> Dave said, well, I'd, I'd, I'd join that. So I did it, and it was fun for a while. Uh, but then uh, it wasn't so much fun anymore. Uh, there's a, definitely a core group of people that I still enjoy talking to. But uh, being on social media every single day and feeling kind of obligated to uh, promote or to provide content and stuff like that, uh, I got fairly sick of that. So, um, and then. Uh, you know, with everybody coming together and the the various podcasts and and groups that have come from that, uh, I'm very proud to have helped start that. But there are people doing it uh, better and with more zeal than I was. So I just feel like I like to uh, sit here in the background and pop in when I like to. Um, but the reason I'm called the completionist is I've been collecting Criterion since well, I bought my first disc in the '90s, but been collecting since 2002 and uh i am i have been complete for well over a decade so it's all just uh uh weekly maintenance so um that's it that's me <laughs> well uh yeah you i think you definitely went out on top uh you know you 
got in and did did what needed to get done and ultimately uh that is the the cycle of uh well life in general right see it's fun right. for a little while and then you just kind of get sick of it and you you get your core group of people uh but <laughs> no true. i, I mean true. i think ultimately uh you know a hobby is is only fun when it's fun and then you shouldn't keep doing it out of any sort of obligation and move on to the next interest and you're still very much uh, obviously invested in the um criterion line both uh literally and figuratively and i enjoy your uh, letterboxd reviews as well and so oh, thank um, you. yeah it's thank exciting you. Uh, exciting to have you on the show well there's a direct correlation thank you but there's a direct correlation there to my activity on letterbox as opposed to podcasts and the like because you know letterbox shows that i actually have time to watch movies instead right. of you know, creating my own content. So that was, you know, I was part of the decision. You know, I, I'm, I'm in this because I love movies. I need to watch more of them instead of uh, always just uh, talking about them, which is, of course, what we're doing today, but uh, in, in moderation. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, well, so the, the, uh, the first thing uh, we ask all of our guests as the rite of passage on each episode is um, how they uh, came to Kishlovsky and uh, what your relationship is with his films and how uh, how that's evolved over over time. He's actually pretty pretty recently um, included in the Criterion Collection, relatively speaking, considering he's such a uh, a sort of luminous figure uh, on the art house circuit. Um, it's only been what about ten years since I think Three Colors was the first film of Veronique his. was the first. Oh, actually. Veronique, that's right. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so so uh, was that your first film, or had you seen uh, some of his previous stuff when it uh, was originally released? Uh, well, I my relationship with Kieslowski starts from uh, you know unknown to maybe slightly indifferent to um, now, probably twenty years on, starting to really get him and love him. Um, back, I collected. Laser disc back in the 90s, and I had a couple of guys, friends that did that as well. And uh, in the late 90s, a friend of mine lent me his three colors discs. You know, they weren't Criterion or anything. I think they were Miramax at the time. Mm. Um, and I watched those discs uh, with not a whole lot of gusto, because for whatever reason, he wanted me to watch them. I wasn't feeling it, but I, but I did it as a favor to him. And I thought they were fine. Uh, didn't didn't quite connect with it or kind of get it. Um, you know, cut to Veronique coming out on Criterion DVD quite a long time ago. Uh, watched that, kind of liked it. Didn't kind of didn't get it. Um, but it was uh, three colors on on Blu-ray uh, here with Criterion that really uh, kind of cemented that. And I was older and and like hopefully wiser and uh, watched them with the care and attention that Criterion put into that package. And finally I got it and uh, went back and watched Veronique again, enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, and then with you guys doing this podcast, uh, I've been watching a few more. I have not listened to any other episodes. I wanted to come into this fresh. So I'll turn around and go back and watch those. So I've seen, um, I've seen Blind Chance, of course. Um, uh, let me see here. Yeah, Blind Chance, and I've seen um, what's uh, 
the cameraman, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Uh, last the film buff, sorry. And uh, last night I watched No End, and I think Travis actually saw my re- review of that this morning. So I did. Yeah, so I'm kind of popping around. Um, that's not usually what I like to do with directors that I'm exploring, but since I had you know started with his last works, I've just been kind of bopping around from wherever wherever the mood strikes me. And uh, yeah, for the for the most part, I've really really been enjoying this. And uh, you know, I'm part Polish, so it's it's kind of interesting to see ostensibly where some of my roots or attitudes might come from. so that's where i'm at right now this is uh this is a bit of a different episode because typically uh when we lead into uh the discussion of the film that we're going to be talking about we talk about what they were what the filmmaker was doing in between uh the films um in this in this (laughs) instance he was making more of these other films (laughs) right right so uh this this is all produced uh at the same time and sometimes even concurrently within the same day uh he was shooting different episodes um yeah i was i was just reading about that uh some more i figured i'd I'd read a little bit more every week to see if we can uh get a little more info and he he would he would literally just be like tell the dps all right we're shooting we're in this hallway today so all three of you show up we're shooting three scenes from each of your movies in this hallway and they would light it and shoot it and then relight it and shoot it and relight it and shoot it and then that would be the day it was like he really really was just shooting three he was like shooting lord of the rings of decalogue just like one location get it all done then move on to the next one well, and That's as you know, amazing. that requires a lot of uh, preparation and awareness of where everybody is and making sure that it all goes smoothly. Um, yeah, there's lots of stories of him just like constantly referring to how tired he was while yeah. making this. He's just exhausted. <laughs> yeah, well, I think a, it shows. It's a good thing yeah. he didn't turn around and make four more movies in the next five years. <laughs> um, yeah, before you know it, that'll kill a guy before yeah, his time. It's true. Jeez. I've heard that. I've heard that. Yeah, um, yeah um, it, I I don't know. I don't uh, have the script, so I haven't read. Uh, but I was wondering as I was reading about all of these sort of multiple production days, how baked into the uh, pre-production the cameos were from. Uh, actors from other uh, episodes of of the film because uh, there's a couple of those in here that we're, that we'll talk about um and i was wondering if it was just a situation where it was like well we're shooting at the elevator for episode two we might as well have the guy you know stick around this mm. afternoon go eat lunch and come back and you'll be in the elevator again for episode four i have a strong feeling that's how it was because uh you know, doing further reading and discussion about this, uh, he he was he was very hard on himself about the fact that he didn't he didn't structure or plan the crossover of other episode characters as well as he should have. It was an afterthought and not a something baked in. Like I think he would have liked to have had the characters crossover have more significance to each other's stories um, than they did. Um, yeah. This the same with the witness character. That was something that was just kind of done on, like not in the script. Well, it was in the scripts, but it wasn't as uh, as fleshed out as uh, yeah as in in the actual uh, filming of the films. I think he said that he had the the witness uh, that that he had the scripts finished and he gave them to somebody 
who read them and said that they were good, but that there was something missing. And they eventually, through discussion, uh, landed on the idea of the witness as being this connective tissue and also almost like a stand-in for the, for the audience, but but also like a kind of spiritual presence that, mm-hmm. um, you know, felt, made made the films feel a bit otherworldly and myster- more mysterious. Right. It does seem like a bit of a lost opportunity to have, you know, like you're saying, it being a little bit haphazard, um, because I think we may try to put more import on it than we're probably going to really find. Yeah, yeah, there, there, there. Certainly, well, I, I think there's, there's more probably value in Shushtoff in episode three. Um, but certainly yes. the doctor cameo in episode four is purely for, for, you know, the benefit of just a, Oh, I remember that guy. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's exactly. Funny. But if you want to go like deep state, you can totally like link him into the idea of abortion and childbirth and, yep. and father and being a lost father. Like you could, like you can really make it if you really want to make the connective tissues and so, you know, subscribe to this subconscious idea of him being there because of these reasons. You know, you if you try really hard, <laughs> you can make it. Uh, not as hard as they, you know, they weren't trying at, at well, all. Well, it doesn't require a lot in. of effort, but I think that's more because of the fact that these stories are so similar in so many ways. Mm. And he's, he's, you know, circling around many of the same themes uh, in in each episode. So it's not... You know, it, it's not necessarily that the Doctor was linked as much as the fact that Episode 2 and Episode 4 share a lot of, of things, uh, as, do, mm-hmm. as do Episode 2 and 3. Um, mm. All right, uh, well, let's jump into Episode 3 here. Um, this, is, uh, this is supposedly um, the, the um, Remember the Sabbath Day uh, to Keep It Holy uh, episode. I think that's a pretty loose uh, connection, um, and and, yeah. and certainly there's there's the adultery uh, element, which comes up in four or five of these episodes. Uh, also comes up here. I like right. to call this one Decalogue Three: Fast and the Furious Pole Position. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there are some really. Uh, well, I guess would it would it be like Versad Drift? I don't know. <laughs> Come on, pole position. Get it. <laughs> I see now I need now I need another day to process that yeah it's rough (laughs) oh I'm delighted with myself (laughs) I'm delighted Travis is already writing his puns for the three colors trilogy I bet he is (laughs) um but uh Keith what what do you think of this uh this third episode of the series well it just occurred to me as you said that about the sabbath um you know it's based around Christmas Eve and Christmas Day um I guess there's probably nothing that tells us that Christmas wasn't on a Sunday that year, but uh, um, just that just occurred to me. I, I have seen this episode three times. Um, first time a couple of years ago, and when I watched it that first time, I thought Ava was an asshole. I watched it again a couple of months ago, and I thought Janus was an asshole. <laughs> And then I watched it for a third time yesterday, uh, getting ready to talk today, and I really don't think either one of them is an asshole. I just was 
felt finally felt very very sad for the both of for the yeah. both of them. Um, that took me three viewings, so I think that kind of speaks to you know all of these episodes and how they can be a bit hard to watch or process at times. Um, but uh, that being said, um, I when I found out that I was doing episodes three and four, we will talk about that four in a bit, of course. I was a bit nervous because of all 10 of them, three and four were the hardest ones for me to latch onto. And mm-hmm. um, again, the three viewings of the, the third one finally made that happen, which is, which is good. Um, if I wasn't doing this podcast, I probably wouldn't have went back to it for years. And I'm glad that I did because, you know, it, it, it kind of helped it all connect together. Um, the episode itself, and we can get into the details as we go along. I mean, of all the episodes, um, this is the one that feels uh, the saddest to me, the coldest, um, the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Can't think of it. Um, the saddest, the coldest, the most pointless, um, not pointless as a story, but just pointless uh, for what these people are going through because... Um, you know, they're both very, very sad people. And at the end, um, you know, they may have had an epiphany of sorts, but I don't think they're any less sad than they were the day before. Um, you know, I should probably say this right out. Uh, you know, I, I'm less interested in these stories as how they're tied to the Ten Commandments because, yeah. um, well, I'm an atheist by trade, so... <laughs> um, uh, that that really doesn't have a lot of of import for me. So I think that you know perhaps the whole series uh, talks a lot about the banality of trying to live your life by those those edicts. Uh, you know, ten edicts, which really, if you look at them, there's really only about five or six. The rest are just repeats of each other. Um, George Carlin's actually only like three. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. That's true. Um. So, so I think I'll leave it at that for now. I'd rather kind of talk off what you guys have to say. But to me, it, it was just a story that, that left me really cold at first. And after two or three viewings, I finally got into it, um, finally felt what these people are going through. Um, but, I, you know, like I said, at, 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 at some point, I consider both of them really kind of heinous people, and it took a long time to not feel that way. And I think that's can speak to a lot of the power of the filmmaking, assuming that people want to come back and watch them again. Yeah, I agree with you, Keith. I uh, I couldn't get into the I couldn't get into episode three. I watched it. I want to say two and a half times and one of the times Mm -hmm. I just kind of I bopped around to different like scenes that I wanted to kind of really focus on but uh it is it's it's a difficult movie because you're kind of you don't know you it's no there's no one easy to side with I was reading and I was reading uh Kishlowski says something about uh uh American television has the problem of always even if your character is bad you want you want the audience to uh root for them like you want them Mm -hmm. to like the character no matter what they are and he didn't want to do that um he sees it as a failing on his own part of not making good television he thinks he thinks he failed making (laughs) television with this series which is you know which is why they show it in movie theaters i guess now but uh yeah exactly he uh 
and you don't you don't like these characters like one one looks ineffectual and just going through the motions the other one is just a constant state of lying and it's almost like a really depressing version of like after hours or like those yeah. uh, those yeah. crazy yeah. one night date movies where everything goes wrong it is uh it is but it's just so it's so depressing cuz you know you know she's just going through the motions trying to loop them along we don't know why and then he's just kind of following along but calling her out on her shit every once in a while but still not taking the reins not doing anything to kind of further the uh further the situation just kind of going along with it and it's uh it's hard it's hard to kind of know get your footing in this film because of that um when you're constantly being lied to and constantly being made to feel like you don't know what's going on because of their relationship dynamic it's it's hard to root for anyone which is usually uh you know my in in most films is like a character that i can kind of connect with and they keep you they keep you at arm's distance the whole entire episode so it is a difficult one to get into but there is something about it after repeat viewings where you get to see the very small nuanced uh, pieces of their relationship kind of come out um, mm-hmm. these little sections where you see that they probably should have been together from the beginning but now they are not because of moral obligations on his part and because also her part as well where she has chosen to go back with her husband after they were caught and so he feels hurt by that which you kind of don't get right away you don't understand why he's not you know being so cold to her until that's revealed and it's a it is it's a really difficult film to kind of uh work your way through matt where are uh, yeah you? i definitely uh yeah. I, I got that the first two times but i didn't feel it until the third mm-hmm. time so i completely agree with you on that this feels like the most um literary of the four that we have watched so far it feels very much like a short story to me um there's uh, you know, the mystery of it, I don't know if it's necessarily enough to sustain uh, a film of this length. And, um, you know, I think it would probably have an equal amount of punch after, um, you know, 20 to 25 pages as opposed to um, 45 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think that aspect of it... Um, m- does reward multiple viewings because the first viewing you're pretty lost through the majority of the movie. Um, and you really only know how lost you are once she reveals that she's been lying this whole time and that he, uh, you know, left her immediately. Um, because with, with once you get to that point, it's purely a shaggy dog story and we've just like this like janush um we've just wasted our time driving around poland in the middle of the night on christmas uh for no reason except that you know this woman didn't want to be alone um and so it it can be frustrating on first viewing for that reason i think um but i i do think uh I, I enjoy this this film for two reasons. I think that um, Janusz, as a character, I get a real emotional arc from him. I, that final moment does feel final to me. It feels like 
Um, you know, he's made peace with something that he wasn't able to make peace with before, because I think mm -hmm. he was, he was annoyed that she showed up at the beginning and didn't want to do what he had to do, but he felt he had an obligation to do it. But I think ultimately through that process, it's no, he's no longer, you know, angry at her and is more understanding that the, of the decision that they both made in that situation. Um, because I think if she had gone with him at the beginning, they would have, he would have gone with her, left his family, and then that would have been it. Um, right. And I yeah, think when he re when he recognizes how much pain she's been in because of their breakup as well, yeah, he kind of finally makes that connection with her again. Yeah, but I think he also realizes like maybe we weren't right for each other. You know, we've had this experience now, and it's almost like. You know, I don't, I don't know. I think that that happened to me sometimes, like if I ran into an ex or something and, you know, maybe you had this thing in the back of your mind, like, oh, maybe that could have worked out in a different situation. And then you hang out with them on one. I'm, maybe you guys haven't hung out with your exes on one wild, crazy Christmas Eve in Poland, but I do it. <laughs> I try to do it at least once a year to stay fresh. But I just go, <laughs> I just take my exes and go hose down naked drunk. Yeah, stuff. I mean, that's usually what I do on Christmas. Right. But hey, you know, <laughs> um, no, but I think I think um, I, I think there is that that feeling of closure at the end of this episode that does work for me. Um, and the, the second thing I, I really like about this episode you know, it's not especially well shot. There is um, sort of an expressionistic appeal to some of the the um, the images. Um, you know, people have have referenced the fact that it's similar to uh, you know, it's got the the red, white, and blue thing going on. Um, but I think there is just this vibe to the evening, this sort of quiet, empty streets. Um, you know, uh, the, the melting or, or the dirty snow, uh, the way these cars kind of weave their way through, uh, this, this city that is, uh, very appealing to me and somewhat, uh, romantic, but in this really drab melancholic way that, um, it, it, it reminded me a little bit of Claire Denis' uh, Friday night even though that movie is sort of this this joyous evocation of um, like a one night stand and, and sort of the excitement and mystery of, of first love, but but I think this has uh, a similar sense of allowing the city to be a character within the movie, and you know, like you said about After Hours, um, and while it certainly isn't as entertaining as either one of those movies, I think. There is like a really effective, efficient depiction of the night that you're not getting from the other episodes in the series to this point. That cold, that cold, cold, cold uh, square and and everywhere else that they're showing outside reminded me a fair amount of oh, which Karasmaki story is that movie with the garbage man? Um, just is that just, Shadows in Paradise? I think so. Yeah, just yeah. that 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 cold, gray, oppressive, uh, you know, deadly feel to everything, which actually I like. We get that in Minnesota all, all winter long. But uh, um, but I did. I I loved the Christmas trees outside. For some reason, those just got me. Those those made me feel uh, even as sad as they were. These these 
little Charlie Brown trees out there with the <laughs> one string of lights on them in this cold, desolate areas. And there were so many of them, but it just, it gave me, it gave me a, a feeling I can't quite describe, but it was just kind of comforting and distressful at the same time. Mm. I had read in the or read or watched in some of the supplements where one of the DP one of the other DPs was teasing this DP by saying, you know, that guy he just had to put his goddamn Christmas lights everywhere, but it was um <laughs> it was it, it was it was a cool effect, I thought. Yeah, it was uh, it's funny that you mentioned uh, uh Kurosaki because uh I was I think of the section of uh, Night on Earth by Jim Jarmusch, uh, <laughs> the uh, the Kirismaki section where it's set, you mm-hmm. know, a wintry cab just driving around, yeah. chasing people around. It's uh, I wonder if this was an influence on that idea because it's such a, you know, just there's something romanticized about cabs in the night going on these little missions. It's uh, that makes it fun. I know that the the DP uh, Peter Sobosinski, he's the one who also was the cinematographer for Red. And uh, he has a pretty storied and fantastic career. But um, going back to something Matt said, the uh, one of the notes I had is the lighting feels so forceful. It is it is not it is it is not comforting. It's not romantic. It's very harsh. Like everything is really red and it's really strong and it's really dirty and there's never a clean frame and everything is tight and uncomfortable. They did a really good job of making you feel like you can't escape what's going on and you're kind of stuck in these situations and and the lighting never makes anyone feel pretty it makes everything kind of like all these lies and there's this harsh truth that is permeating every single scene that is not happening because the lighting is you know substituting for that i found that to be visually a really cool thing it kept me away from it but also once i started noticing it it draw me right into the film yeah, he also did um, Decalogue Nine. Uh, I think mm. he's the only uh, yeah, double up cinematographer. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think the all the 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 sort of Christmas trees can. Uh, yeah, obviously, it makes the the night look pretty. But um, and there's also you know, and and it's a reminder of the Sabbath. If you really want to go to the corresponding uh, commandment, although I I mm. certainly subscribe to the theory that Kieślowski was not particularly interested in tying any one of these episodes to any particular commandment. Um, well, you mentioned it being a shaggy dog story. It's probably a good spot for me to you know bring this up. It's hard for me because, you know, everybody wants to tie 10 commandments to these. Kieślowski may or may not have been intending that all the time but that's the way we watch them now but without it i kind of wonder and you know i could open this up to a bunch of them you know what without trying to import that onto it a bunch of these stories are like well what's the point then and uh you know this one definitely is a shaggy dog story and and you know i i wonder that I guess I just would what 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 would wonder what other people feel. I guess I'm talking to you two. Um, if you try to strip that out, I mean, what's left? Well, I think one thing you know that I was going to say about the Christmas trees is just that, that I think there is a lot of um, you know. Interestingly enough, um, I, I went into Decalogue expecting 
less politics and there's certainly obviously overtly very little politics and he has turned internal uh in his in the depiction of his characters Mm -hmm. but this does feel like this sort of you know crumbling uh polish catholic um uh landscape that is um really struggling with the the lives that these people are leading um in this building that was constructed uh you know in the name of poland like this this movie does have that same push and pull that the previous episodes had and so there is to a certain degree um an indication in these films that just like in polish life the Ten Commandments and Christianity itself is inextricable from Poland's right. past, present, right. and future. Um, so, so you know, I think if you wanted to expand beyond the idea of just philosophically a bunch of characters from one place bumping into each other and, um, you know, causing friction, um, there, uh, as sort of like a universal theme of the piece, there is still this very clear presence of the Polish identity and of what Poland is like in the mid eighties and perhaps where it's trying to go. But you can also, you mentioned the building. Um, you know, I, I it, it was very interesting to me because, you know, as you, as we were talking about earlier, you look at that as, you know, brutalist architecture and very ugly and very drab mm-hmm. and, and this and that. And, you know, some people on a very thin reading would have called, the building hell and um but i've also read that that's what we bring to it as a western viewer right because actually that was an example of a pretty nice apartment building back then well yeah and, it was it was it was it, yeah. it, it was built in the 60s though so it had been been a while but yeah they right. there uh, i mean obviously like there's a doctor that lives there the the mm-hmm. woman in episode two is a uh symphony conductor uh, right, or, or people were on the waiting list for rather. years to get into that building. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So yeah, there is def- that is definitely. I, I agree with you, Keith, in the sense of like it is a bit of a uh, misread to describe this as sort of like it's certainly not a commentary on the 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 crum- crumbling Eastern European uh, right. <laughs> identity or anything right. like that. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, to answer your question a little bit further, Keith, I guess I would place this if you're to strip away its a its a its commandment themed center. I mean, this movie just feels like a Christmas story. It's like any Christmas story that I've seen. You know, a, a little more drab and a little more uh, a little more uh, cold and a little more isolated, but it still has that central theme of. Uh, redemption, forgiveness, and acceptance, yeah. which is most Christmas stories are, this change mm-hmm. that occurs. And mm-hmm. it, it has that same concept. I mean, I, I know that Christmas is associated uh, with the you know Catholic faith because it is part of that holiday. But if you take any of those holiday movies, it kind of has that same core uh, value of of redemption and forgiveness and, you know, the wackiness of going all around the city and seeing different characters in different parts of it. 
um, you know, right, adds right. to it. And it's it is dryly, so dryly humorous. There's so many little one-liners and throwaways that they say to each other or that other characters bring in that there is some humor in it, but it's really hard to find any humor in the film because of the uh, the nature of what we're watching. You were mentioning earlier, Matt, about you know the 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 arc of Janusz at the end and how he becomes perhaps a little more happy in his life or accepting of you know where he's at and realizes he's got a good thing um that's all well and good but it, i also was struck by how that is afforded to him by a ridiculously uh uh understanding wife too yeah mm. uh, <laughs> i mean she's all she's playing the angelic part at that point yeah it does but, seem uh, like she has she made peace a long time ago with this affair right Um, And so she's trying to trust her husband uh, in that situation, um, for sure. Um, I think she, you know, especially with, you know, it's Christmas and he dressed up as what, what is what we see as Santa Claus. And, um, you know, she's, she's trying to keep this family together for the second time. So. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think yeah, that's you, clear. you can you can read that in like the body body posturing and yeah. how excited she like this is the first Christmas he's probably been at home for a while. You know, he's he's you know this is a Christmas the kids will remember and when they give a kiss after the toast. You can see the mother in law just beaming like oh finally they're back together. Yeah. And this is all happy and you can feel that this is you know she's been working hard at getting this back on track and he's still. He's still pining over, not pining, but just still affected by uh, the love that got away, which, you know, brings it back to what you're saying, Matt, about kind of revisiting this ex-love to kind of realize, yeah, no, this wouldn't have worked. This is working out exactly how it's supposed to. One one last thing about the commandment. Um, it is interesting to me in this episode in comparison to the previous two um, that there is no real read of this as punishment for not remembering the Sabbath or, uh, or even thou shalt not commit adultery ultimately. I mean, these characters, even though they are in, in, indeed very sad and in particular, she is near suicidal, um, in this, uh, in this film, um, they ultimately both kind of get what they want at the end of the episode and nobody is really, um, harmed too much by any of the actions uh, in this episode. So unlike the the previous two episodes, which could be read as cautionary tales, I think certainly the first one um, is is the most clear-cut um, example of, of, of a cautionary tale. This episode doesn't have any of that. It's not punishing any of these characters, but is instead just sort of taking them on this journey. Right, but it's also, I mean, it doesn't have to be a cautionary tale or, or something with a, a, you know, a good resolution at the end from the commandment standpoint. It, it can, the way I kind of see it is, you know, do not commit adultery because look at how shitty your life will be. <laughs> you know, yeah, you're going to, you'll be just fine. You'll, you'll, you'll be, you'll continue on with your life at the end, but that's the worst Christmas you're ever going to have, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, like we've said, like, 
these films they they, they encompass all the commandments like every part of it is in there do not lie do not commit adultery do not covet something like it's all it's all a part of the same cloth uh, i find it i find it fascinating that it's attributed to keep the sabbath day holy which is the last one i think of when there's like you know 10 others that are just more stronger cases for what commandment this aligns with um right. in terms right. of what it's what it's saying and what it's about what uh what of uh, so the, there's a bit of a sort of vignette structure here as they like make make each stop along their way um which one of these jumps out to you guys in terms of being memorable well the one i wanted to bring up maybe in a little bit different context but this is a good time to do it you know when they went to her apartment and she went through the pains of you know putting out some toiletries and stuff in the bathroom and hanging up an old coat she had in the duffel bag from edward um the thing that struck me probably on third viewing though is if you look closely her table was set for two Mm. and i have i cannot figure out what that would be for unless it's in some odd way it's been sitting that way for three years it just kind of struck me as very very odd well there's two there's two readings of that that i i could take away with and one is i know it's traditional to place an empty setting um in the holiday there um for christmas okay sure i know there's that but then there's also and this is part of uh something that i kind of i dig into when when uh when Eva goes and visits her aunt, her aunt wakes up and asks her, did you do all your homework? Did you do your math? And she's like, yes. And part of that is Eva is very prepared for everything that's going to happen tonight. She has her, she has everything like, like a, (laughs) like a weird little heist. She has planned everything and she knows she's going to get her back to that apartment at some point. And it's almost like she's set up for something romantic, Yeah. but he, he hasn't been on the hook yet. So because of that, She's going to continue this, like, we need to find my husband kind of thing. That that could almost play that way as well because she is prepared. She's prepared for everything. Leaving the car behind, putting the scarf in it, making sure she calls the police. So when he calls the police, they have a report on it. Just everything kind of like she has done her homework. She is prepared, Um, which I find she's very calculating in that, in that, in that aspect she is making that effort to the point where i don't even know if that pill at the end is anything she would really kill her um it could have been a tic-tac for all i know because she drops it so quickly to the floor so as to not to bear scrutiny on what she has but uh just that idea that that's what it is and i i you know i i did see that as well and i think there's a moment where uh, Shushtoff, uh the father from episode one, looks in on their window at their Christmas celebration that uh, Michael, uh, is it Michael? No, it's uh, Janish. Janish, yeah. Janish yeah. is having with his family, and there's an extra place setting in there as well. There's a uh, room for mm. a sixth person, and then I read up on that. That's uh, one of part of the holiday tradition is setting a setting a place uh, for. Okay, that's the guest. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, uh, I think that's definitely what I, what I thought of. And she, I mean, it's hard to truly believe her about the suicide at the end since she's been lying to everybody for oh, the right. previous, uh, 45 minutes. But, um, yeah, I, I, for me, the most fascinating moment of her character is when she sees the dead body at the morgue and sort of makes like it's her husband i think 
and I mean, I think what's interesting to me is that there could be so many things going through her head in that moment. Um, You know, I think that certainly she could be thinking, maybe I should tell him that my husband, this is my husband and that he's dead. But of course that would mean then they got to like fill out paperwork on this guy. (laughs) It just doesn't seem like a good move. Um, But then, you know, the other, the other thing is veering into screwball. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, but this could, this, this could be the moment where she's like, Oh, this is real what I'm doing. Like there's a dead person right here. And so now I have to like really see this through and the weight of kind of her lie is really hitting her in this moment. And she's got to kind of get herself back together um, because obviously, I mean, she eventually, she eventually decides that she's going to tell the truth. This is not my husband. We got to go keep looking. Um, but there does seem to be some decision-making going on there from her. And it's interesting to think about what, what she's really thinking. As a character of Janusz, it's hard for me to kind of see him still staying involved after that moment because she's so bitter after that second where she looks she sees she cries he comforts her and then she goes don't cover back up that's not my husband and he looks at her with just like what he's like but i wish it was and i wish it was you sometimes i wish your face was crushed underneath the bus and then it's like why are you still with this just go (laughs) home man (laughs) yeah yeah, well, why does he? Why does he go out in the first place? Is it guilt? Is it is it worry that she's going to come in and make a scene with her with his family? I mean, I I think it might be inviting inviting that uh, that relationship back into his life again. Like yeah. just that idea of, I mean, he does. They almost kiss. They do have that moment where they almost reignite again. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if, you know, he's miserable. He just had a family at home Christmas. He's sweaty and looking miserable in that Santa outfit. And he's just sitting there and, like, you know, about to have a normal night when all of a sudden, what you know, wildness and danger is invited into his life again. And he's kind of yeah. like, oh, let's go see where this takes me. Well, yeah, because he is, he is miserable, right? I yeah. mean, you know, he's... He's still trying to figure out what he wants. This is this is something maybe goes well. This is my last chance to uh, kind of explore this. But you know, let's not forget that they played chicken with with the witness with the bus. You know, I mean, mm. I, they both feel at, at least somewhat suicidal uh, at diff- differing points of their days. Yeah. No. There's lots of pushing on both parts. He pushes yeah. her. She pushes back. Um, there's lots of lots of times where they just they they know each other well enough to know what gets each other going and uh, yeah. make that effort. It does seem like there are moments when he could have gone in a different direction and they would have. I mean, perhaps it was just that she made the wrong gambit in getting him out in that way, and you know mm-hmm. it was never really going to work out once she told him that she'd been lying to him all this time. But there did feel like moments where they could have ended up together and he left his family uh, in that episode mm-hmm. um annette annette insdorf i think it was in her uh, double live second chances book uh references um romer's six moral tales um and i had never made the connection even though obviously both both uh are based on kind of not if not Christ, christian uh certainly kind of you know morality and beliefs belief systems um, those don't spread so far and wide. It's, it's a basic structure every time, but interestingly enough, it's somewhat this structure of 
you're with a woman, um, you're tempted by another woman, and then you ultimately come back to the woman that you were with originally. Um, and so, you know, I mean, the, they're very different filmmakers, but there does seem to be this, this connection there in terms of what he's depicting in this film. Do you guys see that at all? Keith? I do. I mean, you could, um, you could take it as base as saying that it's just, you know, following the lead of Irma Bombeck, you know, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. It's, it's, you know, these are people that are, that are yearning for something. And when they get that something, it isn't as good as what they wanted. So they go back and this and that. I mean, we haven't, we haven't talked about the, the, the drunk guy homeless or not. Yeah. Is he, is he truly homeless or is he just that drunk that he can't find his way home? You know, he, he spends the whole thing yearning, to find his house and these mm. two spend the whole evening staying out of their houses you know because they're looking for something better but you know home is probably where it's at yeah 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 i mean the fact that he's carrying the christmas tree because he is trying to find his home he's probably trying to bring right. you know celebrate with his family and being in that uh that uh apartment complex block where everything looks the same it must be hard to navigate and find his way um, which brings me to uh, to answer part of one of Matt's questions and to tie it into the homeless guy. Uh, uh, my one of my favorite scenes is that scene where they go and visit the drunk tank. Yeah. Um, because it isn't until this moment that I I care at all about Janusz as a character. Um, when he finally stands up for these guys and kind of uh, stands up to the treatment of these poor, of these people that's when i finally can see any sort of passion or humanity in him otherwise he's just been kind of like this blank slate of like mm-hmm. stoic sadness and sexual repression kind of thing and then he has this moment where he flares up and he stands up for something that he believes in which uh, makes me understand why she would be in love with him at all um, or the fact that his wife is in love with him and all like there's this like this moment of of passion that kind of really uh, makes me go okay now he's a character worth fighting for he's a character worth being invested in he's a character worth watching and uh, I really like that scene because of that because he does take that stand yeah it's a pretty um, it's it, it's definitely uh, the scene you know when you mentioned that this kind of walked the line of extremely dry comedy the it's a it's an extremely dark it's it it's like at one it's one half disturbing and one half absurdist surrealism um mm. because it's just like it's so stark in its contrast with the rest of the um the film and yet like and all of a sudden you're just tossed into this thing where this guy is just completely sadistically abusing these uh these drunk guys um, and it, it again just sort of like peels back the kind of seedy nightlife that they've been navigating uh, through this whole thing. And there's always like in in a lot of these, there's always like somebody doing something that they shouldn't be doing. You know, I mean, even just like the the night watchman at the um, at the at the subway station uh, with that really unusual for Kishlowski, um tracking shot as as she's yeah. on the skateboard yeah, yeah. um but just like you know that it 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 just sort of like everything is not quite right you know <laughs> i mean like there's just something like a little off about this entire experience to the point you know yeah. as simple as simple as just like 
that you can run a razor blade against your skin and you won't bleed. Um, it's, well, it's that it's that after hours, uh, you know, what takes place while the, yeah. while the while the city sleeps, what actually is going on, and it's all this like strangeness and absurdity, and you know, just doctors sleeping at their desk and not wanting the lights turned off because they're yeah. working. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the other thing about the subway is just how much this reminded me of um, pedestrian subway, and mm. that in in turn by by showing that that hallway. Um, and reminding me of that first uh, narrative film from Kieślowski, um re- reminded me that this story is somewhat similar to that one as well in terms of it being about two people who uh, were together at one point but now are not together and they are kind of trying like one of them is maybe trying to get back together with the other one, maybe not and there is this mystery running through the whole uh, first and second act where you don't necessarily know what these two people, what their relationship is and why they're interacting with each other in the way that they're interacting. So it was interesting to see something as early as that almost 15 years ago baked into this episode. Did you th- think of that, that uh, film as well, Travis? Uh, yeah, no, I did. Um, I didn't think about it until you mentioned it, but you know it does it does ring true to uh, being very similar in terms of themes. Um, I did think about the subway and pedestrian subway when she was skateboarding in it, but it had it has such a different feeling to it because it was so lively and yeah. and fun and she you know the the girl in that in that scene is just so not you know it's 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 funny the difference <laughs> of. Uh, you know that we started watching his films in the '60s, and now here we are in the '80s, and the difference in the culture has changed so drastically from that earlier yeah. pedestrian subway, where everyone is still wearing jackets and suits and hats, to this, where she's like, you know, a girl, a, a woman in a uh, in the conductor's outfit, security guard outfit, you know, no cap on, just freewheeling through the subway with her skateboard because it keeps her awake, not watching the state monitored, you know. Uh, securities right. does she have dyed hair yeah as well? it's like I she has frosted she, yeah, tips yeah. it's all wild and yeah. you know she's not paying attention like you know we just came from a, a generation of you know everyone's watching each other to report on each other and now here she is going now that's not what's important this is what's important just being free and having fun and being yourself and it's a it's such a, a, a drastic change from uh some of his other characters in his films that um she was you know she just really stood out to me uh, in that film uh, speaking of things that stand out in weird ways, uh, w- what do you guys make of the uh, the escaped boy that keeps on that pops up twice, once at the beginning and once at the end? The boy from the uh, I assume it's a, an orphanage or a, a state home for boys. Any any thoughts on that? I kind of I, I was trying to place it in terms of you know thinking about Polish history or about the war, or about but this movie seems so far removed from that kind of concept that I was wondering what you guys thought about it. I kind of would tie it back to what I was saying about yearning and being home. I mean, so there's there's a kid, whether it's, you know, like you said, a state hospital orphanage, that's his home. Certainly doesn't want to be there. Uh, the first time he runs out to see the Christmas tree. Um, yeah, I didn't really, I guess I didn't tie it. didn't realize it was, he was the second boy as well, but that makes sense. Um, so yeah, just uh, to me, it was another example of, of, 
you know, in the orphanage, he had a roof over his head and a bed and warmth and all of that, but it's not what he wanted. He was yearning for something else. He had to get to that Christmas tree, but once once he gets outside, he's made that decision. Now what? You know, if if the orderly wasn't coming after him, he was he would freeze to death, basically. And um, so yeah, you know, making these making these snap decisions because something looks better, and once you get there, you go, oh shit, you know. Yeah, there is like, like also that. just like the, it's just like additional zaniness. I feel like like there's just this sense of you know everything being under the surface a little off and you know this is just yeah, like peeking true. through the seams um just like you know break breaking the people who are supposed to you know be quote unquote put away and and hidden from society they're uh they're all out tonight kind of situation <laughs> <laughs> nice um yeah. there there's there's obviously uh the we do get the witness here um driving the tram that almost hits them um, I don't necessarily know that there's that much more to say than that. It's just, it happens. <laughs> mm. Yep. Yep. I would agree. Um, do you guys have any final thoughts on this, uh, third episode before we move on to, uh, another, uh, example of how women are lying, manipulative assholes? Jeez. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, I do want to mention probably my my favorite little line or vignette in the whole thing, and that is at the beginning when he's heading into the apartment as Santa Claus and Christoph is coming out. The guy from episode one who has lost his son, and I love what he says. And you know, he he walks. He says, "Excuse me, I didn't recognize you," and mm. of course. The, the literal, literal, literal reading of that is that he didn't recognize his number, his neighbor um, dressed up as Santa Claus. But also, if you take Santa Claus as, you know, just the epitome of uh, Christmas and family and fun and all of that kind of stuff, it's certainly not where that guy was at. So I took it to mean that as well as, oh, sorry, I didn't recognize you because there's none of that in my life right now. Yeah. Yeah, that was really the first time I watched it because of the the width of the shot. I thought it was Santa Claus apologizing to Shristoff about like him saying, "Hey, like Merry Christmas." Oh, whoops, I didn't recognize it was you, the person that lost his son, mm-hmm. and here I am bringing joy. But then on you know after watching it a, the second time, I realized my my subtitles were flipped, and it was actually uh, Shristoff saying that, which is mm-hmm. which is very very nice. So, uh, episode four, um, this is, uh, ostensibly honor thy father and thy mother, which is, uh, interesting reading of the word honor. Um, and, uh, this is, this episode is, is about, uh, a, um, a woman named Anka, who's a, a student at an acting school, uh, and she lives with her father, um, Mikkel, 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 yeah. Um, uh, her mother died when she was, uh, uh, right after, uh, she gave birth and, um, they have sort of a chummy relationship, uh, and, uh, Anka discovers a letter that her father has that says, uh, to, for Anka, uh, to be read after my death. Um, and that sets her off on a, uh, a 
mysterious and uh, disturbing journey. <laughs> um, Keith, what do you think of uh, this this fourth episode? Well, let me go on record as saying I'm already exhausted from talking about the third one. (laughs) (laughs) This is not going to (laughs) help. I'll start off by saying that I've seen this one twice. Um, Without my homework assignment to be on this podcast, I probably would have never gotten within 100 miles of this again. (laughs) That being said... I do appreciate my second viewing, and, and I come to it with a, a little more understanding and a little more acceptance. But uh, the first time watching this was uh, certainly one unpleasant experience. Um, and, and, of course, in a good way, right? Because it's because a filmmaker um, had put something together that was that powerful that really made me squirm. And there's not a lot that makes me squirm as far as movies go. Um as we get into this, I I have a, a a bit different take on Anka and whether she's that manipulative. <laughs> um, well, she is manipulative, but uh, I have feelings that th- I just have a feeling that this might have gone a different way than most people take it to, to be. Um, but like I said, we'll get to that. Mm. Um, but uh, again, just such a a, a dreary presentation, a a just sad, I mean, just slogging through these people's confusion and pain and, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, let, let's, let's leave it at that right there is that I'm, I'm, I'm very torn on this one, but, uh, I look forward to, uh, ripping that apart with you guys. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think, uh, this one had my attention. Um, after watching three, I kind of, you know, put it down for a bit and then picked up four and watched that one. And I was invested. I don't know. I think maybe it was kind of like the mystery that starts it. Um, and it's so visually different from the last one. Um, it is brightly colored. It is white. Mm-hmm. It is there is no shadows to start the start the movie out with. Everything is very natural and clean, and there's no colored light. It's all white light, which is uh, which is very interesting. And so it had me kind of hooked at that idea of what's going on, what's happening here, and uh, uh, you know there is that bit of, there's that bit of taboo at the beginning where they're throwing water on each other, and he takes pause, then gets up and leaves. Um, which seems to be a running theme for him. Anytime that this kind of thing prop, cro- crops up, he takes off. I, I wrote down in my notes right at that point, I wrote, Mikal would probably like a wet t-shirt contest. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan. That's what he goes to the United States for, for those wet t-shirt contests. Comes yep. back with American cigarettes. <laughs> um, it, is a, it is, I would say, it is the most modern so far of all the tales. Um, you can really feel a uh, Western influence in this film uh, with its American flag on the wall and Winston cigarette signs and <laughs> yeah. uh, American What's cigarettes. What's a Winston cigarette and, ad in their bedroom? <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's that, it's that dream, yeah. you know, that dream of the future. Look at this giant vistas and cowboys and, you know, it's that weird thing. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, you can see it as something that uh, 
she as an artistic college student probably stole from some billboard somewhere and her and her buddies put it up in her room well, I was like, in college. I was in college in eighty seven, eighty eight, and I mean, people just put this kind of crap in their dorm rooms. I mean, it was a mm-hmm. thing that people did. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I can think of you know people stealing signs from streets and putting mm-hmm. them up in their walls, stealing posters, and just anything. It's, it was, it's, it's, it felt its most modern, and and so I kind of like went into it with like almost like a breath of fresh air, and then that quickly was constricted into a chokehold um, <laughs> throughout the rest of the film. <laughs> In which I was just completely, I mean, it really should say that it's written by uh, Kishlowski, Pisowitz, and uh, and Sigmund Freud. I mean, it is a, it is a deep, uh, you know, just psychological study on, on those effects of parents and children and, uh, you know, psychosexual desires and what that is fomented. You know, how many times have, have you heard like, kind of like parents saying, oh, she married someone just like her dad. Yeah. And yeah. there's that that concept that that you know that sounds folksy and homespun and sweet and adorable. I mean, I was <laughs> recently I was asked if I was attending the father daughter dance, which That's is something that still happens up. around here. And uh, I turned to them. I said, "No. Why would I want to cement these ideas of parents as as uh, symbols of uh, uh, you know? Why would I want to take my daughter onto something romantic? No, it's not yeah. romantic. It's fun. No, it isn't." You dress up just like a prom, and you go out, and you're supposed to dance with your daughter just like you would a date, and that's not that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that, that is not a tradition that we should be continuing forward. That's confusion. <laughs> that makes things harder for everyone to understand later in life. And this is gross, the kind is of conf- what it is. Yeah, it is, and this is yeah. the kind of confusion that ends up happening. This idea of you know she's been in a relationship with her dad solely, and. You know, any outside influences, whether it be uh, another lover that her dad had, which they referenced a few times. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. She found jealousy. She did not like that person. Um, and you can't say it's like that typical, um, well, it's a divorce, so I like mom, and so why are you replacing mom? Because she really never knew her mom, so all she had was this one relationship. And, you know, being as artistic as she is and dramatic as she is going into the arts and being an actress, um, you know, they're studying Romeo and Juliet at school at that moment. Um, And her still being childish. Uh, She plays these games constantly throughout the film. If the candle goes, whoever candle go out first uh, gets to ask a question or, hey, let's play a game. If you lie, I call you on it. If I'm right, then you have to tell the truth. And, you know, this whole thing is a game to her as well that probably just cycles horribly out of control. And, and turns... I tied that to, oh, I'm sorry, I, I no, tied that to episode three, too, with the game of staying yeah. up all night with, you know, it was like, oh, my God, just stop with the bullshit and talk to each other. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And when they finally do start talking about it, you know, he, I think the dad was confused and did have those things as things changed. But... As they talked about it, you know, this is a perfect example of how ther- talking therapy sometimes can work out. Because as they talk about their feelings and their thoughts, I mean, it is the most unhealthy way to do it, I would say. Um, there should be a moderator to help them. <laughs> but uh, we're the audience, so I guess we're helping them moderate what they're go- what's going on. Um, and he kind of realizes what his relationship is to his daughter and what it means to him. Whether he is her father for real or not. He has established, you know, by the end of that episode, what he is and what he is meant to be to her. And she also comes to that realization as well, which is 
is really kind of is really nice at the end like is you know as much as everything that happened and came before it is really dark and messed up and it'd probably be hard to you know uh forget and put aside i know some people can easily do that but it's out there and in the open and it's it's available to them to have to revisit at some point down the road but the fact that they figure out their place together and it almost becomes something healthy again is or i took it as it becomes somewhat healthy again she does a you know she does call him her father again and he call you know he goes out to buy milk which is you know i'm going to provide like i usually do and bring you back milk which is what a a parent does and it's and it's such a challenging film it's hard to go through that journey with them but the reward seems to be uh positive for or at least i read it as positive well i think that's what she's trying to do i mean i i said somewhat flippantly that she's she and ava are, are assholes um but I definitely get the sense that the reason why she guessed what she guessed, you know, I mean, other than the fact that like, if your if your wife hands you a letter to your baby and says, you aren't allowed to see this, like she's only allowed to know it when you're dead. That's the first guess you're going to make, right? Like, oh, wait, this isn't my kid and you don't want to crush my feelings. Um well, that was one of the things I couldn't figure out even on the second viewing. Did the mom put it in a second envelope saying you can only give it to you when you're dead? I or think did the she dad that put on, it in I the envelope. Put, so, oh, well, I guess that's No, true. he put he put it in the second envelope. Yeah, he definitely yes, put it in the second envelope. You know, I was assuming that she told him that it had to be after the death just because of what um, the daughter wrote in her fake letter. Because she, yeah. in the fake letter, she references the fact that if you're reading this, he's dead. So, so you're right. It doesn't necessarily have to be that. She could have just given this to him. But I think that that the fact that he did put it in the in there does the same thing anyway, which is mm-hmm. indicate that he believed that in that letter, it was going to be revealed that he was not her father and my impression is that she has gotten this feeling from him throughout her life that he believes that she is not actually her, his daughter. And that is the kind of impetus for her writing this uh, fake letter and telling him that that's what's in the letter to see how he's going to react. And the fact that he doesn't react with, you're still my daughter, this doesn't matter, I love you, pushes her over the edge into this very dangerous area where she's basically, like, trying to um, prove that he doesn't love her like a daughter. What do you guys think of my crazy fan theory? <laughs> I know, I, I, I definitely see that. I see. I see it as, I guess... Yeah, the thing I thought about it as is is he was respecting his wife's wishes to hold this letter, which therefore he in turn because he didn't read it, he has built up this theory that he's not her dad as well, which has led him to look at her as I'm not her, right. I'm not your dad throughout his whole life, 
which led to her feelings of feeling that way as well. That's which what I'm then yeah, in turn, exactly. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I agree. I agree with you then one hundred percent. I think it's you know as much as it is about honor your mother and father, you know whatever that thing is, it's about the secrets we keep and how they affect us until we get things out in the open. And even even when they finally resolve to burn the letter and not want to know this information and just live their lives how it is now, you know, she still reads the first four letters yeah. and tries to guess at whether or not that's his, that's her dad, which is kind of, you know, kind of messed up. You're like, why, why go through the process of burning it? Just read it. It could have just had some lovely things like, I love you. I'm yeah, sorry I wasn't there hard. for you. Yeah. I wish, <laughs> I wish your, I hope your life has been fantastic. Your father is an amazing person. I hope right. he treated you well. You know, it could have been all these wonderful things. It didn't have to be some dark secret, which is where her, youth and her drama come in where you know this envelope i've built it up over these years to be this like mystery this dark secret this family thing you know tearing through her sweet valley high books of everything being wrong she didn't have sweet valley high books this is Poland <laughs> in the 80s but uh you know that idea that you know being a dramatic a dramatic person being in the arts being a drama student reading all these plays um, you know, reading this poetry, you know, she can't help but feel that there's some sort of mad gothic secret that is happening in this family, which then turns, you know, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy by making that happen. But it's, uh, it is, there's, there's so many little pieces and parts that, that, uh, help tell the story and help, help watch their argument or their discussion, uh, change. Uh, it's really masterfully done. It's a, you know, one act play of just two people conversing in a single space almost it's it's a yeah there's all kinds of little symbols the glasses the glasses are the things that uh glass is a big one in this one i know we've talked about that in the other episodes and reflections and stuff but this one there's it's not reflections as much as barriers and uh, see-through and revealing and having being able to see inside of another person and it's a you know, between the glasses that are on the table that, you know, they're drinking their vodka out of where it's clear, clear glasses, clear intention. He pushes them closer together. They don't break um, earlier. He slams the door and the right. glass breaks. So they're barriers, you know, no matter how hard he tries to close off these feelings, they're broken open and there's nothing he can do about it now. Um, and then he lies all these about moments. it. Yeah. And then he lies about it, which is, you know, which is which yeah. everyone knows he's lying, which is funny because he's very, you know, he's probably a very honest person generally. And so the fact that, you know, he says uh, a, a storm took it and she gives a little eye roll like or a, a draft closed it and she gives an eye roll. And then when his friend comes over to pick up the plans or whatever and she says he says a draft got it and he gives a little eye roll like sure it did. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. there's the obviousness of. He was, you know, he's not a good liar. So obviously, this this is this is his emotions. Something he probably doesn't do. Um, and then the other aspect of him is that I think he pulls out of his travel bag like all these rocks, which makes me think: Is he a geologist? Like, is he about unearthing the past, which is also ties into what's going on with yeah, the story? I was as trying well. to figure out what he did for a living. Did did you guys? get any it was i mean he, what are these plans that are being picked up well, that's all i can think of is uh he's a geologist or architect and they're kind of yeah. doing this you know digging a site so they have to do rock tests or something like that to kind of see if they can build or yeah and he's i guess or, he's always away like on on site or something like that yeah right right 
Yeah, I mean, that makes more sense. I mean, my first thought was just a mule from Marlboro or something. The <laughs> cigarettes back, but... Um, so, do you guys want to hear yeah, how so. one household took this in a completely different yes. way? Let's, yeah, let's, let's hear it. So, um, my partner Maggie and I, when we watched this one a few weeks ago, and then I rewatched it yesterday as well. Um, so, a couple things. One is is you you definitely got some foreshadowing of her feelings for her quote-unquote father in that they're practicing Romeo and Juliet during acting class, and Mm -hmm. she's not really into it. And if I I wasn't quite catching, but it was was Romeo her actual boyfriend as well? Yeah, and that guy, they cast a guy who looks like he is 12 years old. I mean, they really really went all out with that. So, you know, she's not into it. She's not into talking to him in any sort of real way, even though it's acting. But, you know, but then when the acting instructor shows shows him how to do it with his authorial act, acting voice, I mean, she's really, really taken by that, and it really kind of sets her back on her heels, and, you know, you really get the feeling that, you know, she's she wants to hear what an older person says, or she's really connecting there. Um, but then when you get to, as you were just talking about with, with the draft took the door, right? It's a real understated kind of ridiculous lie. And once all this goes down and he's leaving that next morning or whenever it is, and he says, she says, where are you going? He says to go get milk. I took that to be not that he was going to get mm. milk to come back to, you know, just go about their daily stuff. I took it as another understated lie where, mm. you know, he had kind of a bit of a duffel bag with him. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think he had... And never came back? Yeah I, yeah, I don't think he was... He didn't have enough stuff to just plain leave, but I think he was leaving to be gone for a while so he could think about yeah. it and then probably come back and get his stuff and leave for good. Yeah, that was originally and, actually how it was in the screenplay. In the screenplay, he was originally going to um, stay at a friend's house. And then, okay. and then uh, yeah, and, and then in the film, obviously, they changed that. So you're... Right. You're... Not you. You can't be that far off in your in your okay. assumption. I really want. I really want to read the screenplays to these because they keep on referencing them in the different yeah. books that I'm reading about it, about what he's changed and how it changes the the original idea. Like the original ending was him telling a story about a friend who, uh, you know, was very daring on his bicycle all the time, and then he found out that he needed glasses. And when he finally put on glasses, he was terrified of riding his bike in the streets because he could finally see, which kind of would have tied in together with everything with her needing glasses and her being able to finally Mm -hmm. focus on things a little bit sharper and clearer. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that sounded really interesting that, you know, that would kind of complete the uh, symbolism of what's going on in this film. But, uh, you know, it's only there in the script. So I definitely need to check those out. But Keith, go on. You were telling a story. You were telling us uh, the, the reading of the family. Yeah, so, um, and I, like I said, I agree with everything that you guys have said, but the the initial reaction with Maggie and I sitting on the sofa was that we took it as she opened the letter, read it, kind of pushed for this whole sexual dynamic between her and her father, saw how horribly that went, and then 
and then uh, oh. forged a fake letter oh. that they burned. So that's the way, that's Whoa. the way we saw it all the way through was oh. that she realized that she pushed it too far and had to, you know, try to recoup and and fake it on the back end. Wow, Keith, hmm. you're blowing my mind right now. <laughs> that is. <laughs> and watching it the second time and having read about it, I went, oh yeah, okay, um, yeah, definitely. That, you know, what you're saying made a lot of sense, but. I won't say it didn't occur to me, but that's exactly what we went to was what I just said was that she was um, manipulating it on the back end, not the front end. I guess the two the two things that come to mind for me when I'm thinking through the logic of that, first of all, it seems odd to me that she would attempt to read what was in the letter after she burned it um, to, you know, to read those first couple lines if sure. she knew. sure everything that was contained in it anyway. Um, and she really wanted to bury the idea of him not being uh, her father for real. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing mm -hmm. is, is the places where the, um, the watcher uh, shows up, um, the witness mm -hmm. rather uh, shows up, uh, you know, he's, he's carrying the boat, uh, he's he's boating and then carrying the boat at the moment that she's debating whether or not to open the second letter. Um, you know, she's just cut open the the first the second envelope yeah, the first. She's just yeah. cut open the first envelope. She's debating whether to open the envelope, um, and then he shows up when she, she um, confesses. You know, when he's going out to get the milk, quote unquote. When she confesses uh, to him that she didn't actually read the letter and that she made it up that to me i took as the this the these moments uh of the witness being essentially a conscience saying like this isn't right for you to open this letter initially and then showing up for her to uh set right the 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 lie that she had made for him because of the way I was taking it and having less of a spiritual bent on all of this, yeah. you know, I'm, I, I looked at him the second time giving her that look like, well, I just caught you lying like a rug, you know? Mm. So, um, right. Because he but saw I, the, I definitely yeah, he see saw that. the yeah. letter being opened the right. first time ostensibly. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm. Right. Now they, they, he doesn't actually look at her in that one, right? She sees him, and we only see him carrying the boat. We don't see his face. I, I don't in that think you can see visit, his right? face. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think you well, just he's see basically putting just, stuff into it. Then, well, yeah. This is this goes with my theory that uh, uh, Kieslowski is doing a big uh, Kalushinov effect uh, experiment with his audience and the watcher. Because he's always just stoic and staring. He doesn't show mm -hmm. any emotion, but we apply that emotion based sure. on the edit that comes after or before. <laughs> because we always see what the person's reaction to his staring uh, gives them. Um, it's never like he's never inflecting any sort of emotion. He's just watching. And then you see there like because, you know, you see him, he steps up. But it is kind of funny. It almost it almost seems like he was late to this meeting because he's paddling so hard <laughs> and heavy across that river. So he's like, oh, shit, shit. I got to make this meeting scene, or she's yeah. going to open that letter. <laughs> yeah, no, <it's, laughs> this is this is my big break. Well, I'm going to get in trouble. It is if I don't funny, make it. like, I mean, he's pretty subtly inserted into episodes two and three. This this definitely comes back to episode one in terms of his presence. I mean, like 
Mm. It, the, he, it's very clear Kieślowski wants you to see the witness in this episode. Like he gives him a fucking boat to carry through the yeah. through the scene. So it's like he could, he might as well just have like superimposed on the screen an arrow pointing with witness yeah. uh, to it. So it, so there it does seem you know again this this is just one of those situations where um you know it's hard not to feel like you have to ascribe some sort of relevance to the his right, presence right. in those two moments just because it's so obvious and apparent um that he's there um you know i, I we we neglected to mention the um the Kishlowski quote um for, uh which is basically the same quote that every uh, director ever has ever made about their symbolism in films um which is you know the sometimes the cigar is just a cigar defense um the <laughs> the and he has said like you know when i when i have milk in a glass like that's not supposed to be the you know the absence of the mother or, or any any sort of symbolism it's just milk in a glass which you know right. i think is pretty pretty much we can all agree is bullshit but i think there is <laughs> there is certainly a tendency to overanalyze uh films that are this uh textually complex um but yeah i mean there's a guy carrying a boat through <laughs> through the scene um as she's you know revealing this big big secret that she's been keeping for for the last 20 minutes of the film so it does seem um certainly seem relevant in that instance um but yeah, Keith, well, I'm, I'm still said, struggling with, your, with your question, Keith. Well, it's, it's a t- it's it, it 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 definitely could go either way. I think. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I've come around to what's quote unquote the right way, but it was just interesting to me that that neither one of us took it yeah. that way. And then when I started reading about it, I'm like, nobody's talking about mm. this. This is really weird. But no, going so. back to the subtext and all that, I mean, I I've, I've said this many times, but you know a, a director's overt intention or lack thereof is not always the indicator of you know the the themes and the subtext you get i mean just because he he meant it as a glass of milk doesn't mean that it doesn't come across organically yeah. as you know what we're talking about yeah the subconscious drive for whatever the subtext is and right. you know especially with a director becoming apparent as a theme that they've you know if you see a glass of milk in every single one of his movies, you start to go, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was this yeah. guy sponsored this by is, milk? Yeah. <laughs> this is more than a glass of milk, isn't it? Uh, no, no, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, well, the, the other thing uh, here is the, uh, the, the uh, of a character showing up is the doctor in, um, in the elevator uh, as they're kind of having this very intense moment. Um, uh, discussing the fallout from this uh, supposed letter that she's opened, um, and the, despite the fact that it's ju- he just shows up and says hello and then leaves, um, it does recall the basic premise of episode two in the sense of a, a woman who may or may not have fathered a child by uh, another man other than her husband. Um, and then you know that that just leaves us with the and again the the possibility that this is re- referencing the adultery commandment as opposed mm-hmm. to the uh, honor thy father and mother. But um, did yeah, yeah, I mean, what did what did you think of that connection? Um, and 
did you see any other connections between this episode and some of the previous stuff? I took it as more of an authorial or, or fatherly presence where, you know, Mikal was the father, but until we get into the situation now, he's potentially the boyfriend or the lover uh, or a potential lover. And now you've got this doctor who stands there, who just seems to be kind of judging the whole situation, although he doesn't really know what's going on. Um, he side-eyes them pretty good. Yeah, I mean, he certainly did not make any pretense of not listening to their conversation. Yeah, um, it seems like he's also wondering, like, why they're not getting off with him, why they're why they're yeah. continuing to go down. Exactly, you know? exactly. Well, yeah, when the elevator opens, like, it, they, they're they hugging as an apology hug, but they break apart like they were lovers yeah. caught yep. in the elevator, yep. which yep. is very uncomfortable. Like, I think that was the most uncomfortable. Even though she takes off her shirt and invites him to touch her, that was more uncomfortable, that break apart, than anything else in the film for me. Like, it was like, oh my. that is Well, when uh, she asks him uh, what she should call him, and he says, I don't know, that was like, wait, where, where is this going? <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it's certainly, uh, you know, it, the first time I watched this episode, the, the very first scene uh, out of, is obviously out of context, and you immediately think well you know what is this relationship um you know who are these people and uh, you know that that really makes it makes what comes after it that much more confused because you really you know it's it's just like a perfect example of how each one of these episodes just cuts into somebody's life at this very specific time and you don't Mm -hmm. know their history or the context Mm -hmm. of their relationship all you know is what you're getting on screen and so you're constantly struggling you know it's almost as if in each of these episodes you're struggling to make a connection with these characters you because you don't know them initially and so the 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 process of living with them and in their lives and in particular in such a tumultuous moment in their life um it it makes that that struggle for connection that much more intense and um, you know, ultimately I feel like that's part of what you come away with, with each of these is, is this feeling that like you've spent this very intense, quick moment in somebody's life. And, you know, now you're just left with like the fallout and wondering what the rest of their life is going to be like after this experience. And, and these episodes, uh, bear repeat viewings cause they've yeah. become very, uh, you know, very rewarding. Um, yes. when you watch when you watch this one a second time, you do see all the pieces laid out. You see that, um, you know, the letter is in his passports where it normally would be. He always takes it with him on the trip. But then there's that, you know, that uh, uncomfortable exchange with the water and and all that business. And now he leaves it behind, almost as like I want. And you know, and he points it to her, says, "Hey, oh, whoops." I forgot to pay the bills. Check inside the drawers in the cabinet where he has mm-hmm. left it for her to find. And so you see this intention. Like as much as she is an instigating this whole thing, he has instigated it for her to find this information. And there's all this great symbolism of, of just that is built within the piece. When when she goes into the basement to go through her, uh, her old things and her parents' things, you know, the first thing she pulls out is a hobby horse. Then she pulls out a small bike. Then she pulls out a kid's backpack. So you see her going through the detritus of her youth growing up to this moment. And then to reveal that, you know, this, uh, you know, these envelopes, which, you know, 
you know, still ties into, you know, what she's looking for, what she's searching for, and what she's discovering, what she's going to do. And then going and getting glasses to help her. Now she's an adult, she wears glasses, and she can see things clearer, and she's smarter than this. And then, you know, launches her attack at, you know, seeing how far she can go with her, you know, pseudo-dad. Or, you know, to see where this all, you know, all turns up and turns into, which is, you know, it's, you know, you wonder, is he, is, are they trying to say, like, if there was a mother involved, she wouldn't have these feelings because she would see her dad as a person that is with a mom. So she wouldn't be interested. Was she playing the mom for too many times that she yeah. has now taken over the role? Like, there's all kinds of, you know, it's that nature versus nurture. Yeah, thing. Well, and also the, you know, even, the co-worker says to, to her, you know, she was just like you. Your mom was just like you. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, essentially like that, I, that to me left me with this feeling of like, how does this guy really perceive this woman? Like, obviously he's raised her from a child, but now if he's looking at her as somebody who is quite possibly exactly the same age as the mom was when she died, um, you know, is that confusing? It's a replacement. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. I, uh, I really see this, um, this episode as sort of a actor driven episode more so than, uh, the previous uh, films like the for me um, the the perform Anka's performance is uh, really exceptional I think in this film mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in general um, you know not just because there's a scene of actors acting um, it feels like a uh, a movie about actors the movie about like the their interactions and it just feels more a lot more focused on that aspect of it than uh, the previous episodes. You know, the, the last one felt very um, focused on sort of tone and, and uh, look, uh, like aesthetics. Um, the second mm-hmm. one was very, like, cinematography. The cinematography was very um, artistic and expressionistic and interesting. Um, and then the first one was more plot driven, I think, but that this, this episode felt very much like a, uh, uh, an exploration of who these characters were. And I feel like these two people pulled it off really well. Well, you could definitely see that being done on stage and being yeah. done very well on stage. And, you know, it's, it is a lot about acting because it certainly appears that the, acting facade that they've used uh consciously and subconsciously is is being pulled back so you know they're they're kind of being laid bare of you know we need to look at this uh from a reality standpoint now and this this cinematographer is one of the ones that that uh Kieślowski had worked with before he shot short working day and um blind chance and um there is there there is this feeling of like uh, well, there, there's definitely a Bergman vibe here, right? Like there's the, mm, no, for sure. uh, family secrets. Obviously, incest is, comes up frequently in, in Bergman's films. Not frequently, but more frequently than you would perhaps like. Be comfortable yeah. with. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and, uh, and so there is this, like you said, like this could come, this could be performed as a play. There is this real feeling of like cohesion um, of like a, like a working troupe that, you don't get as much, I think, in the previous episodes. That's a that's a really good point. 
No, I agree. I agree. I think this is a is a performance piece. This one for sure. And then the the last little piece that I wanted to bring up was just the nice touch at the very, I think at right at the very end that uh, um, you notice in her bedroom she's got a teddy bear, which I believe that she, he had brought back at least if not on that most recent trip. It seemed to me there was a spot where it was implied that that he gave that to her recently, and it was back on her bed, and it kind of seemed like it, uh, or it was pointed out that it was on her bed, and it just seemed like that that was a symbol of kind of reasserting the daddy-daughter relationship. Yeah. Well, this. Well, yeah, that, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's sorry, Matt. No, uh, it's fine. I think that's that's part of the thing. Like he left that letter for her, but he came back with a teddy bear with the intention of being her dad. You know, right. I don't think he came back with any. Ill, Ill intent, like like he wouldn't have brought that back. He would have brought something like you know he would have brought back something else, maybe maybe a nightgown or something creepy like that. But <laughs> you know he came back with a teddy bear because he was like, I'm coming back as your dad. Like like no matter what's in that letter, this is my intent. And you know it went sideways, of course. It didn't help that he lit her cigarette for her like lovers in a noir movie did, which was really <laughs> yeah. gross. But uh, you know that that concept that he did go into that, and there's that is a nice moment where you see that the teddy bear's in the room. The color has returned to that clean white um, as as the progression of the film goes. When they get into their conversation in the apartment through the night, uh, it gets darker and it gets more orange and gets more shadowy. And then after the conversation is over, it's a nice clean, uh, crisp white again. Everything is everything is back to kind of like that nice color palette. And they go outside and they have that conversation. But you also pan over and you get to see that picture of her mom. Uh, stuck between yeah. you know these two two men between two glass reflections um you know complicating things that you know whatever the truth is it's never going to be kind of revealed and you know just be happy well that's that one last she... twist of the knife that kishlowski always ha- needs to get in right i mean because yeah. this was uh even though it's it's got one of the more disturbing plots of the the episodes that we've talked about so far um, it's one of the happier endings in a sense that uh, they've both gotten back to equilibrium and also aired mm-hmm. out a little bit of their dirty laundry that they didn't necessarily want to talk about, but certainly hadn't talked about in the past. So there is this feeling of, again, it's one of it's, it's, it's like episode three, not a punishment of the, uh, of, violating uh, the ostensibly connected commandment um but more exploring perhaps what that means to honor thy father and mother and in, in one of the books i think it was insdorf again um she points out the irony in her opinion of honoring thy father by burning the letter which in turn dishonors the mother by not following her wishes do you guys agree with that reading and how does how you know even if you don't necessarily connect that commandment to this episode would you how would you say that the the story here relates to the concept of just respecting respecting your parents essentially well i think i i think that's certainly there but my read on it 
really was more of, you know, this is a, a 20 year old woman now. And, you know, yes, honor your, your honor, your father and mother. But at some point, you know, you have to be fair to yourself mm. and, and find out this information. So I don't, I don't see it as so much of a, a, uh, a, a negative towards the parents when I feel like it was overdue for her to have this information. So it was almost more like it was, yeah, the commandment is there, but at some point it's kind of silly and you have to do your own thing. But mm. I think I'm, 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 I'm well on record here is, is not liking uh, yeah. a, a lot of that, that the thematic part of it. So, yeah, I don't, uh, I, I understand that. I, I read the same thing about the, the irony of that, that, that fact, but I don't know. I think it's that weird, it's that weird line of, I, I agree with Keith about at some point, all that past is past and you just need to kind of be now. And so to get rid of that temptation, to get rid of that, you know, whatever that thing is that could uh, disrupt everything and change the course of your life. Uh, you know, it's worth, it's worth sometimes uh, getting rid of that. Like you would a, a lot of baggage and the fact that, you know, the father helps willingly. Also, he also doesn't want to know the truth. He's also happy with the life that they've built because they have built a life. I mean, the mom was never in the picture except for, except for that moment, you know, where she gave birth to her daughter after that it's always been their relationship and their story so it would be it makes more sense because he's actually honoring his father uh, honoring her parent because her mom was never her parent so to mm. to burn that you know burning that letter it doesn't affect her because she's gone and he's she's never been a part of anything and just bringing her up and you know having her insert herself into their lives in the form of this idea of this secret has irrevocably changed their dynamic and so to get rid of it and to go back to their relationship that they had uh, I think is more of the honoring part which I I find to be better I find that to be a more satisfying thing well also I guess you could argue that whatever it is that she has to reveal to her um you know if it is this deep secret that she you know didn't want her to know until uh later in life um, by burning the letter, she's saying that you are to me what you always have been my mother who gave birth to me and, you know, gave her life for mine. And I don't, it does, it's not really important to me to find out that you had an affair or, uh, you know, that, um, uh, you have, you have $400,000 of, uh, stolen money stashed away somewhere <laughs> let's hope it's not a that tre- a treasure yeah. map. it could have been a treasure yeah. map we could have had a goonie yeah your father <laughs> is not aware that i was actually a multi-millionaire <laughs> that would not have been i hope that's not the rest of the sentence um but yeah um i i mean i guess the you know it again it becomes so so vague and uh difficult to connect directly that i i the more the more of these I go back to and really try to think about it, the more I, I agree with Keith that um, it's kind of a fool's errand to try to attach too much direct, uh, a certainly, um, uh, you know, uh, didactic uh, moral uh, lessons to any of these episodes. Um, 
No, you have to you have to let him go. He he didn't he didn't hold them to yeah. those as well. They were the loose loose framework for which they write some stories. He didn't he's not expecting everyone to build a religion about these. They're just yeah. you know. Well, as you were saying, Matt, I mean anything anything more direct probably would have been a much less interesting didat- didactic experience. Yeah. Mm, no, exactly. Yeah. Um what do you guys you preach to for Yeah. Him? What do you guys think of the structure? The the last three episodes that we've talked about, um, two, three, and four, all have a similar dynamic of um, putting you into these characters' lives without the knowledge of some specific secret that they're keeping, um, and in in all three cases it's uh, a female character um keeping a, a secret about um their relationship to another character um and then it's only revealed later in the film um i guess i don't have like a direct question about that but i'm curious to know your thoughts on like the effectiveness of that structure and especially the persistent use of it for these three hours well my my reaction is that's how you tell a fucking story (laughs) i mean that's that's to me that's the best way to do it i mean can you imagine the you know the american version Mm. of this we would have had a a preface to each one you know laying it all out on how and why this happened and here's you know here's uh here's mom giving birth to the daughter and then Mm. she died and then we jump ahead 20 years i mean to, that's my favorite way to tell the story is 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 to withhold information and then parse it out yeah as needed yeah yeah i'm i'm withholding judgment about structure because unlike the two of you and most people who are hopefully listening to this show i haven't seen the whole decalogue i've only i'm i'm this is all new to me so the structure itself uh, i i haven't really started considering it because i'm thinking about it in terms of the the structure of the whole entire 10 hours of the show so you know i guess i haven't really noticed and i haven't i don't know if this kind of structure you know pays out consistently throughout the next episodes as well or if this is just unique for these three that they're grouped together this way um so i'd be interested to see if this continues that 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 thematic of uh of a withheld piece of information a secret that is uh told by the end um I am yeah. interested to see. Well, the, ne- the next one is a pretty big shift in focus, if even just because mm-hmm. I think these four, first four films are primarily about family and sort of internal domestic dramas. Um, you know, I guess the second episode has a little bit more in the sense that the woman and the doctor don't necessarily know each other um, and are certainly not related, but I think they all of the the specifics of the basic story of each episode is about family and so we're we're moving away from that with the next one but um what uh what else uh, do you guys have to say about this fourth episode is there anything that we haven't touched on yet well, Travis, if you're saying you haven't even seen three and four, you did a really good job today. <laughs> I know, right? I've only I've only seen number one. I've just been guessing at this whole thing. It's pretty amazing, to be quite honest. I'm really looking forward to Travis's first uh, Kieślowski movie. 
Uh, I still haven't seen one of them. I've been lying been this whole time. Surprise! Surprise! That's the twist. Amazing. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. That's the you've twist. Been, I haven't been seen pulling a me on movie. this uh, wild night for nothing. <laughs> uh, no, I I think that pretty much covers it for me, Travis. Yeah, I just yeah, I I think there's uh, this idea that uh you know the father who didn't who didn't know how to deal with these feelings he's had is constantly trying for something uh, irreversible to happen in their lives so he doesn't have to act on them or deal with them at all. Like this repression of that feeling and having this conversation gets all, all that out. I find that to be an interesting an interesting thing where he's he's willing to let his daughter sleep around with men in hopes that she gets pregnant so he'll never have to have this. And then she's sitting there going, well... I have, and I've had an abortion because I want you to deal with this. And it's it's really it's a really messed up dynamic, and and the fact that they work through this to some semblance, and he comforts her like he would as a child, rubbing her back and singing her a bedtime song um, at the end, which easily could have veered into completely inappropriate, yeah. but is played very very sweetly right like as much like as, well, there, there's to that, me. it's like, like it's he, like that he, one moment where she's laying on the bed and uh crying and she's got her shirt up and he yeah you know it's what he corrects it pulls the shirt down yeah exactly yeah and he he covers her with his sweater that he took right. off earlier in the scene not a piece of her clothing or her own t-shirt but he does comfort her and in, in something warm something that is his you know he does you know as much as that intentions there I think from the jump he has had the idea that it is inappropriate and it's not something he'll pursue. But he that's why he always extricates himself from any of the situations because he wants her to figure this stuff out on her own. And he says that to her and, you know, she she pushes and pushes. So it is a, you know, and there's all kinds of great moments within the film of these little slight moments or symbols or, you know, just little things that kind of help you understand each character and where they're coming from. And it is a, it is a hard subject matter to talk about. I mean, this is something that is discussed in psychotherapy. These ideas, you know, if you go through the phases of, uh, of Freud's phases, you know, you have these attachments to parents and your sexual, you know, your sexual identities sometimes stem from whether or not mom or dad gave you certain affections in certain ways or an adult did this, you know, there is these, there are these things that, um, are talked about behind closed doors to help people become healthy mentally or in relationships. And then here we are having this conversation in, you know, 15 million, uh, homes uh across poland at, at in the 80s it's 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 you know it's a very it's a very ballsy move to put something like this out on television mm. it's super and you know it there's something to be said about that like you know if you would have turned this script in this would have gotten super trashified and put into some lifetime movie in which someone was murdered and then it was this psychosexual thing and the the girl yeah. would have been you know vilified or the man would have been demonized and it would have been a whole thing someone had to pay and someone had to be wrong but because of the time and the place that this story is being told um and the you know the, the fact that they chose to tell this story is very is very interesting and 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 it it bears 
viewing to be able to see a whole aspect of of these questions these thoughts these lecherous men have or these young women have there is that whole sub you know that, that whole uh, world of of uh you know cross lines that we have when we talk about these father daughter dances or women with daddy issues or you know there is that it is a general conversation that people have it's something that is flippantly thrown out and to have to have this story uh dive into it headlong and you sit there and squirm and watch it and then kind of work through these things with these characters is a really brave and just fantastic thing and that's one of the great things about our journey through uh, Kishlovsky's movies is there are subject matters that he's forcing us to kind of you know with death and with um, uh, obsession and with this you know the, he's forcing us to take a look at these things and evaluate these things and and relate them to our own lives and 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 it's a, it's a, it's a fan, it's a fantastic and fascinating thing why is it that a hugely catholic post-communist or just turning away from communism country can tell these stories more strongly more effectively than we can i i I just that just continues to blow my mind all the time we're supposed to be all woke and this and that and you rarely or at least especially in the 80s on tv you could Never have told yeah. a story like this. Well, it's it, somewhat ironically, I think you can tell, tell a story like this just the way that Travis mentioned, which is salaciously and sort of with this taboo, uh, right. steamy so, but underside. You but, but you can't tell it yeah, honestly. Yeah, you can't tell it honestly yeah. and I think complexly. I mean, I think what's interesting yep. about this episode is certainly there's, there is a lot of um, a sexual underpinning to their uh conflict and that is sort of the most overt aspect of it but i think there's probably a lot more going on in their relationship um and under the surface that is leading to these complications um and that are manifesting themselves um on a on a, you know in a sexual fashion um and i think that aspect of the movie completely removes it from any sort of uh, exploitation in any way. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that it's 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 very well done in that regard. And yeah, I agree with you, Keith. I mean, it's uh, it it is really a, re- uh, a reminder that um, you know, I mean, a big part of what uh, spurred the uh, the new Hollywood movement um, in the in the late sixties and seventies was um, the, the films like Bergman's films in the 50s mm-hmm. um, being uh, shown in art house cinemas in America and adults actually going to get to see movies that, you know, didn't involve Charlton Heston uh, acting in a homoerotic fashion with uh, either, uh, you know, uh, his <laughs> uh, a, a yeah, Roman yeah. Or, a, or, a, or an Egyptian. So um, it, it, it seems like... Uh, an obvious point to make uh, in, t- in today's superhero uh, obsessed film culture, but um, it, it really is true that, that there's not a lot of work being produced like this um, in the U.S. And whether that's money or the audience taste for it or 
uh, willingness on the part of studio heads to okay movies like this or or just our our own sexual hang-ups and attitudes i mean i think this movie uh you know we we even expressed a little bit of squeamishness at the beginning of this conversation and um i'm not necessarily sure that the average european would respond with the same initial response to these interactions which ultimately are not um consummated and and in a lot of ways are very honest and open um and ultimately appear to be healthy for these two people oh i agree i I think it's all of that yeah i think it does have a lot to do with the money one of the big things that he keeps on harping on in the book uh kieszowski does in his interviews is that these aren't movies that are intended to make money on these are you're given money to make a movie and you just go make your movie. They don't, it doesn't have, it's not about the ramifications of what the box office will be later. This is your money. Go make your movie. We, you know, what, what happens to it afterwards, you know, maybe it will affect your money down the road. But if you have a good idea and, a, and you can, you know, apply for all the proper permits, you'll be given money because that's what, that's what they do. And it's a weird system. We don't have that here. We've always had some sort of studio system where box office, is the denominator for how these films get made so it is i think it does have a lot to do with a lot of european countries it's not about that it's about you know they care about the critical response to the films but it is about you you know you submit your proposal you get a grant and then you go and off and make your film and so you're able to cover these really strong adult topics because you're not worried about will it play to the 13 to 18 year old demographic yeah, that Winston poster was not product placement. That was no. a stylistic <laughs> choice. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, wow. I think uh, I think we've I think pretty, we did pretty well covered. We those. did it, guys. Um, <laughs> Keith, uh, Keith <laughs> thank you uh, so much for coming on and and talking about these uh, these mixed feeling episodes of uh, Kieslowski's yeah. Decalogue. What uh, it was. It was very interesting because I think I said this at the beginning. I mean, these were the two episodes where I went, oh, shit, what am I going to say? I, but uh, I think I talked enough. <laughs> you, <laughs> you did, did all fantastic. Right, <laughs> Are we going to put Key through the ringer and make him uh, do some uh, uh, some uh, uh, numbering of well, what his yeah, favorite yeah, Kieslowski films gonna, are? I was just going to say, Keith. But, so, well, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm curious to hear if there's a particular Decalogue episode that moves you and then just kind of what your favorite uh Kieślowski, uh work is and where where you'd put Decalogue in in relation to that I think I'm gonna have to be f- fairly obvious and say that still to this day my my favorite is red um it's just a to, to me a very f- uh, fulsome and fully made movie um as far as the Decalogue goes um I would have put these two at the bottom of my list up until my second and third viewing, and now they're they're up there equal or above. Um, I think right now uh, my favorite is still going to be episode one, uh, just because of the way the way it started out and kind of introduced us to this world of this, you know, this apartment complex. It's the one I've seen the most. I probably do like it the most. Um, I do have a, a very soft spot for, what is it, is, 
What's the one the short short story about or short movie about love? Is that number five? Six. Six. That's six. Yeah. yeah, I have not watched the full length movie yet, and I'm looking forward to that. That was that was a very special episode to me, and you know that the woman whose name I will not try to pronounce. Um, I I really thought she's a very strong uh, screen presence in that, as well as in No End, which I just watched uh, last yeah. night. Um, no End, I found to be a very strong movie. Um, but again, going towards my uh, uh, anti-spiritual uh, aspect of this, uh, Travis saw, saw me write this this morning on Letterboxd. Uh, with No End, I was very I was very on board with the narrative device of the dead husband um, coming along to kind of set us up into the story. And then when I found out it was actually more of a, 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 a true ghost story so to speak i I wasn't as enthralled um Hmm. but uh, i'll go back and listen to that episode and see what you guys thought uh thought later but uh yeah i i still i still think just from a a a uh full full uh full-blown successful movie i i would still have to say red yeah cool well um again thank you for coming on and um uh it's uh, we wanted to have uh, the best and the brightest on these uh, Decalogue episodes. Not not to put anything uh, down on any of the, our previous guests, but um, I'm really happy to have slotted you into one of these um, episodes in the mini series of Decalogue. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, your voice is definitely missed on the interwebs. So we do appreciate <laughs> you uh, coming out and uh, and lending it to this episode. Agreed. And I hope you finally get to uh, episode 10 of Criterion Completion so I can have, have the complete 1 to 10 set. Never seen. You know, they got to make Eclipse. They got to make Eclipse to 50. That's right. And they got to make Completion to 10. Never say never. <laughs> All right. Well, Travis, next time uh, we'll be covering, we're gonna, it's going to be a little bit of a departure from this structure since uh, we'll be covering uh, episode 5 and the short film about killing, which is the... Uh, uh, about an hour and a half uh, extended version of the um, fifth episode of Decalogue that was um, shown in festivals. Uh, and um, So this is yeah, like the Lord of the Rings. Doing. There's the extended editions, the normal editions, the television cut. This is... You know, Travis, it's exactly like Lord of the Rings. I can't think of any any difference between... Decalogue and Lord of the Rings. So the witness is Gollum or something? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> a boat is his precious. Yes. Uh, yeah. And with feel the milk thro- flowing through you. <laughs> <laughs> One commandment to rule them all. <laughs> well, I guess with that we're complete for another week. Twenty fifth frame media